Part of a writer's job is to read. It fills the tank, expands our empathy, teaches us new ways of envisioning the world and ourselves. The Outrider podcast presents Have You Read This? An ongoing miniseries project where we read and discuss those books we feel that, because we're writers, we probably should have read by now. So, Please join me and my intrepid co-host, Delia Tramontina, as we dive into another book from our endless list of unread classics. In this series, we discuss Juna Barnes' Nightwood. So get your glass of wine and get comfortable. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the final episode of our uh, Have You Read This a series on Juna Barnes' Nightwood. Um, because Delia and I really were struggling with this book, we decided to bring in um, a special guest, a, a fan of the novel uh, that we know, or rather a friend of Delia's who I now know, yay, um, to tell us you know, what it is about the book that, that draws her to it, that makes her love it. And, you know, it was kind of a challenge to make her uh, tell us, you know, why we should give it a second chance. But we wanted to make sure that we got out of this uh, series without, uh, without going, yeah, the book sucked. Yeah, never read it. Because really, well, you'll hear me talk about it in the, in the show about, you know, why it's important to, uh, to read challenging books and wrestle with them and, and give them space to breathe and, and, and grow on us. So our special guest uh, for this is Stacy Coet. She's a higher education administrator and has an MFA, is uh, currently a doctoral student and all that fun stuff. So she's really smart and really funny and brings a lot to this conversation that I love and am grateful for. So I hope you enjoy this, our final episode on Juna Barnes Nightwood. Thanks. Come back. Here we are with our fourth and final show on 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 juna barnes nightwood i've got my friend delia here who we've been reading the book and since we were both struggling with it we decided to uh, recruit last minute um a a champion a fan of the book to uh we what we hope uh could well we are we are putting um our guest uh stacy cohet on on the spot in a way because she is a fan of the book at least that's what i've been told and my initial response when I when Delia and I mentioned it was was that well she can then convince me to reread that book again. <laughs> oh God, does that mean we're going to end up having another another like we bring Stacy here? We're like, oh yes, let's read it again, and then we have a fifth show based on this book, which is less than two hundred pages. Now, if that is the ultimate outcome, I will feel that I would have done my due diligence. Oh, good. Okay. Now, so. I guess to kind of wrap up a general stuff, and then I'll, I'll let uh, Delia um, kind of go run with uh, her impressions of the book. But we read the uh, the intro by Jeanette Winterson and the intro by um, T.S. Eliot, and more so because of of Winterson, I was we kind of th- thought we were going to be getting something different than what we ended up getting, and not that that in itself was disappointing. But at, at one point, Winterson in her uh, in her introductory essay says that you know, you know, reading Juna Barnes and Nightwood is a bit like uh, um, you know drinking wine with a pearl dissolved in it, and forever after you are pearl lined. I don't feel 
pearl lined. Um, and I wanted to, I was desperate for this, you know, um, in my, in my notes for tonight, kind of the way I wanted to lead this off was, you know, is I'm reminded of that, of this old, uh, Buddhist saying is that, you know, when we realize that all people suffer in the same way, how can you hate? And this, you know, being a book that is, is from what we've read in our research, you know, um, very important in the LGBTQ community as, as a touchstone, as a literary touchstone, it's being revived around this and stuff like this. I was looking, f I was really excited to get a book where you know, that principle could kind of be, I would be present. And I'm, and I'm not saying it's not there for me, but I didn't feel it the way I kind of expected to. I was looking for that mutual humanity, you know, that, that slice of recognition, you know, when people love each other, regardless of gender or sexual identity, that's going to be universal. And touching that universal is magic. And I was like going, yeah, I want that to happen. And maybe it was just this not bringing too many of my own expectations to the text here. But we had commentary from the, the cat gallery down here. Um, there are two cats that are going to be part of this interview. <laughs> so, you know. The cat disagrees with you. Yeah, she disagrees with everything. <laughs> so... That's kind of my thing is that, you know, we got in there and really the only times that I felt like there was some clear emotion was when everybody was piling on and picking on Jenny Petheridge. Petheridge. That was like there was the one moment of clarity when I wasn't struggling with the language. So I feel like we kind of, that's my take. Um, Delia? So I was rereading, uh, due to my laundry mishap, I, I had less time to review than I planned on, but I did go through my notes. And um, it, it's the same thing as Jason, something I had said to you. And it is a similar, I think, reaction I had to Ulysses and other literary works, which is there seems to be a moral landscape that is foreign to me. And so I can't connect to it. And the drama of it seems um, foreign to me. So there's a lot of like big reaction. I have no idea why everybody keeps talking to the doctor. Like there is like, there are things that are happening and they're not, it, to my mind, they're not, um, I don't understand why it's happening the way it's happening. Mm -hmm. um, and I think some of the language is beautiful. I think some of the way things are like worded and, and, ex and explained are, are great. It's not like I, I didn't like it. There are parts of it I liked in terms of that, but in terms of like the content, in terms of the story itself, um, there were, like it, it, there are things about it that seemed foreign and that um, people do things that don't necessarily make sense. Like I said, like, I don't know why everybody's going to the doctor to talk about this woman and he is <laughs> taking up most of the space in the book and, and, and things like that, right? So... And I think Ulysses was a similar thing where people are like hysterical. And I'm like, why are they like, why are they freaking out? Like, I don't, you know, <laughs> like, why is this happening? Why are you reacting this way? Um, 
Like, I don't get why everybody loves Robin, except for the fact that she is unattainable, right? And that's a thing. But I don't feel endeared to her right. at all. I felt I felt somewhat endeared to Nora. So if there's something about her where even the child in the story falls in love with her, mm-hmm. right? I'd like to know why. I, I don't know why. Besides the fact that she's mysterious and likes to hang out in bars at night, which is, you know... <laughs> Anyway, so that is, so there is a, there is a moral and emotional landscape that does not make sense. So you don't have to address all of our specific concerns here. In fact, at first you can kind of ignore what we've said, but tell us what it is about the book that you love. What's, what pulls you back? And have you read it more than once? I assume that's the case. Yes. Yes, I actually just did a second reading in preparation for this discussion. So, um, well, I, I will say, I think I think you have to be careful when you're approaching Nightwood. If you're really primarily looking at it through the lens of the contemporary reader, mm-hmm. you're going to have trouble connecting with it. Because it, it is, I mean, I don't want to get too into the movements, but it is a modernist text. And, you know, and right. Elliot, both Elliot and Winterson, I think, address that really well in their, in their prefaces. And Winterson, I think, is, is, is a better read for the contemporary reader. Oh, definitely. <laughs> because she, definitely, yeah. she makes it a little more accessible to kind of how we're, we're engaging with the world. And it feels more familiar. And maybe that's why you were feeling disappointed, because she's, um, and it's funny, so I see the doctor as sort of, you know, just like Virgil was Dante's guide through hell, the doctor is the Virgil of the story. Yeah. And if you're going to have to try to your own, try to find your own Virgil or your own doctor to get you through night, but I think Winterson is the right choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you are looking for some really amazing literature that de- deals with queerness in beautiful and human and intensely gorgeous ways, I, I would urge you maybe to, and I will join you for that as well, if, if you will invite me back, um, read some of Winterson's work. Win- Winterson is the writer that through a book of her essays opened up Gertrude Stein for me, opened up Virginia Woolf for me. Um, she has a real feel for for just writers who really lose themselves in language. And I think so for me, and you know, actually, so, so going back to what you said, Delia, for me, this book, if you're struggling with language, I would almost say it's because you're not surrendering to the language. It's something that you have to give yourself over to and not try to translate, especially into a, a contemporary worldview. I mean, I think for me, this is a novel about people who are lost, who are alienated, you know, there's, there's, they're performing, there's the circus, they've got different faces, you know, and, and so they're, they're living in sort of a disjointed world, you know, on the verge of, of great tragedy. Well, bookended, right, as we know now by great tragedy. Right. And I think part of the emotional engagement of the characters isn't, because you're going to like them or identify with them, it's because they feel so deeply. And that deep feeling isn't rendered in the way that we would normally render it in a lot of contemporary literature. I mean, so Eliot, if I can find this, does a really, I mean, he is a little, you know, supercilious as he tends to be, um, bless him. But he he does say, um, but he's talking about, you know, but I do not mean that most contemporary novels are not really written. They obtain what reality they have largely from an accurate rendering of the noises that human beings currently make in their daily simple needs of communication, et cetera. And this That's is not my that. favorite line from his intro, because we could go on for hours about my perception of what contemporary fiction's like. It's and I just I do think he, he does a disservice because I think that is its own beast and its own 
it has its own terrors and joys <laughs> that, yep. you know, are very satisfying, but I think this is something different. And I think, so we'll take from it the, the point that this is something different. So, I mean, just, just some, and it, it, I was telling Julia, that this, I hope this doesn't sound too high handed, but it, it really, when it's, I've tried to explain this book to other people and why I love it, it actually makes me think of um, <laughs> Archibald MacLeish's poem, Ars Poetica. I haven't read um, it. It's, it's really wonderful. Um, I'm not going to read you the whole thing, but it's basically making the argument that strong imagery can convey deep emotion. Mm -hmm. And so the, the last few stanzas are, a poem should be equal to, not true. For all the history of grief, an empty doorway and a maple leaf. For love, the leaning grasses and two lights above the sea. A poem should not mean, but be. And for some reason, when I, when I delve into Nightwood, that comes back to me a lot because I think what she's doing is giving you this really rich, intense, deep engagement in this, this very visceral imagistic world. Right. And I think that's where the emotion is, but it's not in the obvious way of, I like this character or I care mm -hmm. about this character. It's in, I'm, it's, it's, it's almost in the mimesis of experiencing the alienation and deep engagement. And I think that's maybe what makes us uncomfortable about the book because these characters are deeply uncomfortable in themselves. And I think that's part of why sometimes, especially the contemporary reader will cringe from it. Anyway, those are just some initial thoughts. No, I, I get it. And I, and, and that, that kind of touches on that, that comment that I think, um, it was Elliot who made in his introduction that you have to be trained in, in poetry to, uh, to have, um, to really kind of grab the f hold of this, of this book. And, you know, I don't know that I was looking to identify with the characters, but to, to recognize in a way. And it's not about whether I wanted to like them or dislike them or whatever, but to, to recognize the, the conflict, the, uh, um, the ambivalence of, you know, of, of, of being in love with somebody that is particularly someone who's, who's hurting you in that process. And so I was, I was digging around that and there was, and I can, and I understand the wanting to surrender to the language, but I off, but what I've, I found the language and maybe Delia um, felt the same way too, was that it oftentimes wasn't that I want, it wasn't that I was resisting or, or, or failing to surrender, but completely confused by it. And I wondered, I, I asked Delia in the, in the last episode, I said, is this because even though as a writer who's supposed to be sensitive to language, am I not as sensitive as someone like Juna Barnes or other queer people of that era, hypersensitive to the coding that goes into language in order to survive in a heteronormative culture, right? Is there th some of that going on here where the language is coded or, or layered in such a way that it makes sense to someone who has learned to speak in that manner in order to protect themselves from a hostile environment? Whereas me, cisgendered white guy, <laughs> you know, I get to take everything at face value on the surface level, even though I might be sensitive to language. If it gets too you know, deep and interwoven with other things, it just right over the top of my head. Well, that part, Jason, we spoke about yep. last time. Um, 
so I don't know, but what was the initial question? Because you got into the, does it need to be coded in terms of um, well, it is, you protection, know, but. Is, um, well, I guess it's kind of more of a, of a sentiment driving at, at how then do we, do we surrender to the language? What's the key? What's the, uh, the uh, emotional linguistic primer, so to speak? So, so this is kind of what I get, and maybe I'm being too simplistic about that, this, because like, and I said this to Jason, like I can read all sorts of like experimental poetry, right? But like the brain I bring to that is not the brain I bring to this, right? And mm-hmm. maybe I need a third brain or a few, but, or maybe they need to meld in some way. Um, so as much as like Stacy, you're talking about surrendering to the language, you were still aware that they're hanging out with circus people and you're still, right? Like it's, it's, we're not treating this like abstract poetry. There is a, there is a narrative and there are, cur- there are events and you can name them, one, one can name them. Um, and so when we talk about to translate, to me, in my mind, that gets smushed with, do I understand the narrative, right? Am I going, am I reading this as if to understand the story, right? And there is a lot of like, you know, and this happens a lot with the doctor. who's like, someone comes to him, distraught, asks him a question, and seven pages later, he has not answered it, right? So, <laughs> and that's not, that's not an exaggeration. So um, I see a lot of that, what you're talking about in terms of like the language and kind of surrendering. I see it a lot with him because he spends so much time not in this happened, this happened, this happened, but I'm going to wax poetic maybe uh, about the question that you've, you've asked. And sometimes what he is saying is more clear than other times. And there is a certain amount of like coding for the time, right? Like, like I had talked about the, the, the use of the word racial, mm-hmm. which I'm pretty sure has to do with being like Christian versus Jewish, right? Like there's that type of coding, which I'm sure would be handled n- different now than then, the, the use of that word. Um, or the fact that, you know, it seems that the doctor's transgender and, and that is probably talked about in a way that's not, would not be, you know, that would be talked about differently now. But it, it seems like, Stacey, as I hear you talk about like the surrendering to the language, that there has to be kind of a this, right? Like an up and a down, like I am coming up or down, depending on the direction. Um, I am going to a location where I am catching the narrative. And then I see here that I'm not getting the narrative, but there is a, there is a musing, there is a talking around, there is a, you know, more like the poetry I write, which is to kind of get in the periphery of the thing rather than be like, I'm going to, you know, talk about a flower. I'm actually talking about a vagina or whatever. Um, <laughs> right. Not to do like the one-to-one reference thing, but that there is an, a recognition that you, you, you catch on to narrative and then you kind of take a vacation from it to delve into the language and then, oh shit, they're with the circus. All right, I'll, I'll take note of the circus and then I'll go back and the doctor will be talking five pages about someone with no legs or, or something. Um, so I, I appreciate what you're saying in terms of the alienation is mirroring the alienation 
of the characters. And it's the same thing as Jason. I don't necessarily need to like them, but mm -hmm. I think Jason, what you're saying is kind of my, in, my thing too, is to understand, which is there are. Right. Right. You don't, you don't, I don't understand. And it's, and it's funny, sorry. It's funny that you mentioned Virgil because I did compare this to a long time ago when I was doing Coda's radio, someone asked me, what is your version to reading grief myths myths? And I said, there is a moral, there is a moral universe. There is consequences that is foreign to from my world, right? Like you do something and a God punishes you in this way. And there was nothing that I could have done to predict that the God was gonna do that, right? Except that they decided to do it, right? And there, and it's not quite that way, but it is that like, there is a cause consequence, whatever, that is not one that, um, not that I should be able to predict it, but it should, that, that I would want it to make more sense in a way that I can then emotionally connect. Jason, sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, that's fine. I was just kind of going to ramble on a little bit about the, you know, the not, I, I don't want, I didn't want, it's not a requirement for me that I like her or even dislike a character, but I do want to recognize their humanity, however different from my own that it is. And that's kind of something that, you know, I really only recognized and, and, and noticed when the language and the story took on that clarity when everybody was, you know, um, attacking Jenny and telling us how awful of a person Jenny was. That was maybe that says more about me than it does about Juna Barnes is that I really key on dislike for some reason. I'm a horrible person sometimes, I guess. It's clear, but it's clear. Yeah, but it's it's clear, and it's and it, and you can sense the the emotion. You can sense the dislike that they all have for for poor old Jenny. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, I've yeah, I I think it's important to uh, to be critical of texts, to to wrestle with them, to have these discussions. But I also, you know, part of the reason I I asked Delia if she knew anybody who loved the book was because when people get done listening to this podcast, I don't want them to walk away going, "Well, I'm not reading that goddamn book." No, give it a shot. We gave it a shot. Be open to the to the book. And if you struggle with it, be honest about that struggle. This is what's good about literature, even if it ends up that I don't reread it. You know, maybe one day when I'm older, I will. But the struggle's important. And then figuring out why you struggled, why the book should be important, why it needs to be important. And having a fan here, yay! You know, I just, I, I'm, I'm curious, you know, what... Who who in here, you know, books often the reason we we favor them, the reason that we cling to them is that they there's some resonance, there's something that speaks to to our lived experience. That that moment when something is said in a book and you realize that's what I've been digging at my whole life. I've been scratching at and never understood. And that writer put that sentence or that character or that person or that scene in place, and it just suddenly. I see this. I understand now why X happened, why this happened, why I feel that way. Did some what it was there something like that in this book f for you, Stacey? Yeah, Where's the yeah? So, so I guess I, I would say you know, Delia, you're talking. You kind of frame things in like the creation of a moral universe. I think what Barnes did is she actually sketched out an amoral universe, and I think mm. what what the doctor is doing is not giving us a lifeline he's coming in and saying it's nothing stop trying to make something 
of this thing that is nothing. And he says that at a couple of different times, if you all come to me and I talk, 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 and I'm filling the space because I'm trying to give you something to glean onto, but the reality is at the end, it's nothing. And so I think for me, I think the sense of, there's so many moments of passionate intensity present in people who are lost. And so for me, I love the sense of these are people who are in a world that's playing with identity, but they themselves still feel really deeply. And even though we may not understand and they don't seem to understand each other, they still feel drawn to each other. So they confuse and confound and frustrate and anger and strike out at each other, but they're still drawn to each other. And so for me, what I always emerge from this is, is it is a dirty, difficult, <laughs> intense world, especially if you feel intensely, but at the end, we're all still fighting for connection. And it's those moments of connection, like even the moment when <laughs> it's uh, that moment with the, 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 the lioness at the circus. Oh, when, when, oh, Nora when it, and yeah. when, 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 so when it, when it bats at that moment where the lion sees Robin and is kind of reaching for her. And that is what pulls Nora to her. I think the appeal for Robin, because just to go back to what you had mentioned, Delia, I think it's her, it's, she's got a certain animal freedom. She thought she's feral. Well, that's her you know? thing with doing the dog. Exactly. She, she, she impersonates the dog at the end. But I also think that the, the dog, it's more than just impersonating the dog. Because remember, at one point he says, you know, the two of you may live at opposite ends of the earth, but the same dog at the end will find right. you both. So and that, to me, is like, a, that, that is a great line. Like, that is one of those lines where I'm like, that's a brilliant line. And at the end, that that, that dog kind of fulfills that prophecy for me. Exactly. <laughs> in, in a place yeah, that actually has a chapel and a courtyard, right? Yeah, we do have that resonance. You know, you have the mention of the dog in the middle of the text, and she nicely brings it into that last scene. Now I just need the the weight behind it. It didn't, I guess because I was a bit baffled and I didn't feel the, the weight. I could see the architecture, but I couldn't, I could see the plan of the architecture, but I couldn't see the foundation. Well, I guess for me, the architecture is the thing, you know, the things that they're showing us are the emotion. Like, why is she still, why is that dog beckoning to her? Why is she, mm -hmm. and then even the violence of, as you know, Robin is approaching, Nora's flinging herself at the door. You know, there's there's this aspect of collision, and I I do I I just feel like we we don't often find we pretend like we find people in polite and easy ways, but we don't. We tend to collide in our most intense relationships, and and I I like the collisions. I like I like the, actually I I I I actually appreciated the desperation of Jenny. <laughs> You know, and I mean, and who hasn't felt that greed? Like she's she's got this narrow, greedy way of being in the world. You know, she's squatting in other people's lives. But even that narrow, greedy desire is—it's very human. It's very imperfect, I guess. And I found something compelling about that. That you know, and so I think that's that's what always draws me in. And I remember them on my first reading. I I really disliked Robin. And I had the same, I thought, why, why are people following her? And then in this reading, I thought, no, cause she does have this feral quality and who doesn't sometimes feel drawn to people who can seem like they're just drifting through the world, doing what they will, getting what they will in these seemingly effortless ways. Like there's something about that, that it may not be power, but it feels like power. And then feeling like she's got this power and control, but at the end she's down with the dog and she's in this deep moment for me is a real grabber. 
I don't know. So, I feel very emotionally invested in that. Yeah. So Stacey, just on that point, like I did understand that, but I understood that because I understand that about people, not because I understood that from the text, right? Like I get, she is this, she's kind of, she's, um, she's kind of unpredictable. You can kind of can't get her. There's a, right. Because I get like, we want, like, I think as humans, there's part of us until we are really well, you know, like really, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Jason, we talked about this last time, but until we're like, not mature, but we most of us at some point in some way want what we can't have. And I understand that intellectually. Ambivalent. Um, um, that the different, I'm going in no. a different direction, but, but ambivalence is conflicted. Good. Um, um, I was, no, no, I was talking about until we get to something, we are going to be these people who are going to be intrigued by that, which, oh. intrigued by the ambivalence. Yes. Right. There is a thing where like when we get half, or when we get ambivalence from another person, we kind of want to go towards them to figure it out, right? They're not, yes, they're not, no, they're maybe, right? So I understand that intellectually. Like intellectually, I actually understand why they why they like Robin because she can't be held. But I didn't experience that necessarily in the text. I, I knew that because I understand that about humans. And I understood that before I got to the book. But there was nothing in the book that made, because I've read books where like someone falls in love with someone who like, you know, is a little flighty or likes to <laughs> go get drunk. You know what I mean? Like that's not, that's not a new story. Right. But you kind of, you experience the pull of that person specifically. It's written in such a way that you can experience the pull. I understood the pull. I did not experience the pull. I don't know that we need to experience it. I think we need to understand why other people experience it. Do you know what I mean? And so I think that- the, No, I, the, yeah, yeah. So that's I, what I'm saying. I, 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 have, I am, I thankfully have not been drawn to people like Robin, but I understood <laughs> the pull of it for people because there is a freedom in that feral, because it's not just that she's unavailable. It's that she's feral. There's something animalistic and very naturalistic about her way of being in the world that, does in some ways feel like a certain kind of specific, if difficult, freedom. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a, I do see the, I did feel the somewhat of that appeal to that. See, um, when I think of Farrell, I just think of someone who's really good in bed. Uh, <laughs> like that's, that's part of where I, no, honestly, like that's part of where I go with it. When I hear Farrell, I think this person's an excellent lay. Um, <laughs> I'm not saying that's, I'm not saying that's all of what she is, but um but I think I think that's like part an, of it. I think of an animal wandering the earth, scratching out their existence. You know, even the lioness can feel that in them and mm -hmm. wants to reach for them. And mm -hmm. you know, there's a, people. There's something in that that people want a part of. And I don't know. That's sort of what I felt as I yeah. followed her through the book, especially at the end. Like that's a, it's very satisfying to me that she finally just collapses into it. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. That I think that's. It, it's it's a weird sort of engagement. I agree, <laughs> but it, that's I I find that very engaging and. Yeah, I don't know. I think, and there is like, I, I will sh just show you. I mean, I have so many, I don't know if you can see them. Like I, I, I don't do this to my books, but there are so many pages where I turn down corners because I want to go back because I read something and I just go, oh, that's, but it's thick. I mean, I would say to you that, so I would, I would say to people who are coming to this for the first time, be ready because I think it's deceptively narrow, but it's very deep. And I will mm -hmm. say like, I'm a, I'm a fast reader. Um, and I tend to be able to take things in quickly and deeply. This book slows me down. 
Um, but I, I think part of me has found enjoyment in that in the really forcing myself to engage and, and be confused at times and have to read and reread and think about it. And I think it's one of the things I've had to accept about this book, that there are certain turns of phrase and things that I, I I can't fully comprehend, but if I sit with them and I read them and reread them and let it turn over in my mind and and I can, I can actually like feel it in my body. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the thing about this is if, if I give it, and that's why I love the way I do feel pearlined. Um, I think the the (laughs) sense of if you, if you, if you let it in and really let it seep in enough, it it will physically impact you. And it's Mm -hmm. rare that I find that I, I mean, I I love books of all stripes, but there have not been a lot of volumes where I feel it quite this viscerally in the bone. And I just, I think a lot of it for me, it is, it's, it's not just the alienation. It's the sense that of not only will the world never understand you, but you will never understand the world. Right. You know, it's the mutual alienation. And I think that's what's going on here. These aren't just people who are not feeling accepted or understood by the world. They're actually finding circles that do embrace and accept them, but mm-hmm. they themselves are still so alienated from the world that they're living in that it doesn't matter. Not, I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense. It, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a two-way alienation. And I think that, that that's, there's something to that, to be able to capture that mm-hmm. and still have people who, and, and I guess maybe that's why I still find myself rooting for all of them. Even Jenny, actually, especially Jenny, the squatter sometimes, because at least she's, she's trying to, to, to make something her own, you know, and in this place where, where everything seems impermanent and is, right, right. Uh, is in reach, but then out of reach. And I mean, but, but so one, but the last thing I will say is if you want to talk about the affection and the bond between, I guess there's, there's a, there's, there's a, and I'm, and I, I, I didn't have enough bookmarks, so I apologize. I'm flipping, flipping, flipping. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to be okay. able to find it. But there is that moment between, there's a description of Nora and Robin setting up house and it's in the possessions. Oh, let me see if I can find it. But there's, it's like, they're, they're, it's in the possessions that they're accumulating. To, yes, here it is. It's in the possessions that they're accumulating together that Nora is sort of defining and giving substance to their bond. Uh-huh. And I identified with that. So yeah, in the passage of their lives, this is page um, 61 in my version. In the passage of their lives together, every object in the garden, every item in the house, every word they spoke attested to their mutual love, the combining of their humors. There were circus chairs, wooden horses brought from a ring of an old merry-go-round, Venetian chandeliers from the flea fair, stage drops from Munich, cherubim from Vienna, ecclesiastical hangings from Rome, and like a spinet from England and a miscellaneous collection of music boxes from many countries. Such was the museum of their encounter. And Weird. I don't know, there's something, something about that. I, that I did, I, I do think, especially actually, so if, if it was a contemporary reader, if you're looking at something to, to, to bond with here, we, we do use our tangible items to, as kind of totems <laughs> of mm-hmm. the relationships that we're building. And I, for me, it was, but it was, it was also kind of mimetic of how the, for me, the book works in that she's giving you objects and images, mm-hmm. and not necessarily a clear cut narrative, but it's, but wrapped around those objects right. is great feeling and emotion and connection. So I know that, that does that make sense? I know for some reason that, that is really. It, it does. And now hearing you talk about it, I realized two things happened for me by the time I got to that page. At some point early on, I had been confused and that confusion kind of like, you know, 
subtly switching tracks on a, on a train, you know, just suddenly shifting one thing. I ended up on a different track. And so I have actually a, a mark on that page, on my version of that page, where for some reason that that section stood out to me, but not for that reason. Because actually, as you reread it and I'm looking at it, this is something that I do in my prose is that I tie objects and lists of objects mm. to things as sentiment and place and things like this. So I should have recognized this. But for some reason, I was so distracted or confused by something else that all I wrote in the margin next to this paragraph was, they do move fast. <laughs> <laughs> Which is also true. Which, you know, just reminded me of an old joke I once heard, and I don't remember which comedian was, but it was a, it was a lesbian. I wonder if this is the joke I'm thinking of. It was the lesbian comedian about how, you know, lesbians will meet each other and, you know, they move in the next day, right? And, and that was, that was, that was what kind of popped into my head rather than, and I'm, and I'm just wondering, is the reason we, you, it's encouraged the people are encouraged to read this multiple times is because there are so many moments when Barnes throws the reader out of, of what John Gardner would call the vivid and continuous dream. And she's doing that on purpose. Is she taking you, see, here's the world. Now get the fuck out. And you have to <laughs> struggle to get back in. Yeah, because it's, and again, it's mimetic of the experience of the characters in that time. You're flailing okay. the way that they're flailing, right? So she's kind of pushing you into this, this moment of deep disconnection and, and you're, you're desperately trying to connect. I don't know. I, did, I, did, I think there's, there's something to that. And I do think she was deliberate in that. Again, that's why I have to say, like, it's, it's, one, it's one of those, I, I am usually, I can, when I read, I can usually shut out the entire universe. Mm -hmm. People can be shouting in front of me. The TV can be on. There can be traffic noise. For this, I needed to retreat to my back room with very little distraction, and that's rare for me because I do it. It's something that you know you are forced to really because you are so often thrown out of the moment. There's so little true narrative to bind you to it. So I agree with that, and it can be very disconcerting. And I will say, on my first read of it. It still moved me, but I, I think on the second read, I felt more tethered to it mm -hmm. than I think I felt the first time. So that's why I, I would encourage folks to give it a few deep reads. And but it's it's hard. I mean, it's hard. For, I think it's. I think Wonderson makes this point too in her introduction. These days, you know, it, it's hard to devote yourself so fully to something mm -hmm. and to really yeah. focus so deeply. And I think that's part of the discomfort of the piece. I mean, for me as well. I had to really devote some time and some energy and some focus into this in ways that I don't. Usually, it's very easy for me to get immersed. Mm -hmm. into into a book and, and then it's harder here um and that way it is like poetry i think you know it's concentrated but you really have to be in it well it reminds know? so it reminds me so there's a writer who's like one of my favorite writers that jason doesn't like um and <laughs> which one is a, this Talia oh, Fields, and we had a really uncomfortable conversation i believe in a barnes and nobles in boulder in like 2000 oh talia about her. oh okay. yeah and her first book point in line which was I, I don't like dislike her. She confounds me. She's, oh, no, I'm, I'm sure you like her as a person, but um, I never met her as a person in those in the years I was there. Really? Yeah. Okay. No, anyway. she kind of kept to herself, and I think, I think she witnessed a few things that I participated in, and mm -hmm. so she just kind of always made a wide circle around me, oh. and I was kind of scared of her because she seemed like one of those people that. Do you remember that confrontation between all the prose writers on that panel and Deb Sika that one summer? I wasn't there for it, I don't think. But you and I did the same thing or you left before me. 
No, this no, this would have been Did this would have been this would have been your first summer, my second summer. Um, so, yeah, and it's where where Deb kept asking this question about you know what what we were doing to to pull um, marginalized voices into our prose, mm -hmm. and no matter how we answered it, she it never made her happy. <laughs> of course, she was never happy about anything. Oh, Jesus Christ, I hope she's not listening to your podcast. Anyway, I, um, I remember Talia reading her book, and I did take a class with Talia. She's lovely. Right. Um, and, and her work, right, and she does all sorts of things where she, like, messes with, like, you know, playwright and poetry and mm -hmm. narrative, right? She like, kind of throws everything in there. But her stuff... Right. I remember the first piece. I remember the first piece that she read or one of the first pieces she read at that reading. And her level of disjunction was such that I was I was drawn in because of the disorientation, which is like, holy shit. I had no idea you were about to say that. Right. But I'm not trying to under, understand at all. I'm just like, you're just going to make something pretty. I'm just going to listen to it, right? Mm -hmm. I'm, and that's when I talk about I'm listening with a different brain. And that's right. why I really like to work because there is like this thing that can happen for me in experimental poetry where there's enough of a tether that I can attach in the way that I attach. And it's going to be specific to me. Someone right. else will attach in a different way. And so like Stacey, when you're talking about the kind of coming in, coming out, it sounds like there are times when the relationship to the work turns into that, right? There's the circus and there's the objects and there's, this is what happened. And right, this is the concrete action. And then there are these moments where that tether becomes a little floopy and we just kind of <laughs> go with it. Um, and I think for me, I'm very concrete in the way I engage, right? So I am very like, I'm writing, I, you know, like I, I, from this is probably my shortcoming is like, I'm doing a thing with this thing and this is what I'm doing with it. Don't ask me to do more than one thing. I'm going to like, <laughs> you know, and I can read difficult narrative. It's not like I can't yeah, yeah, read yeah. very yeah. difficult text, but I get into what I'm doing. And that's what I'm going to do. But and it's a level I'm, of engagement, right? Like you don't feel as engaged because of it. Like you understand it, but you're not feeling that same level of engagement. I Is that what I'm hearing? I think if I, I think if, if I, because, okay, so this is, okay. So this is my issue. I mean, I have several, but one of my issues are, I, this is a, this is a piece of narrative. This is a fiction, right? So I've talked like Jason, I talked last week about like reading Toni Morrison and having to pay very close attention to what is happening, like what's happening on the page for, so I can understand what's happening in the narrative because the way she writes is not A plus B equals C. But I pay attention and I get it. With this, there is, because I'm paying attention to get it, I have to trust myself, the book, whoever, the universe, mm -hmm. that I am I am going out and coming back in at the appropriate time so I don't miss something that I would need to actually understand the mm -hmm. story. And so I get very like, I have to understand the narrative because this is the narrative. And if I go, oh, this is getting a little, mm -hmm, 
um, there's still a part of me that wants to be like, no, I have to kind of engage with this in such a way to understand how it connects, what the story is. Because if I go away too far, something's going to happen and I'm going to be out in floopy land and I will not have caught it. And then it's a chapter later and they're in Paris and I don't remember the plane ride. You know, like it's just, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I think for me, like my response to it, I think it, 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 this book really is more about the relationships than the plot. And if you miss a mm-hmm. plot point and you don't understand everything that <laughs> the doctor says, that's okay. You know what I mean? I think that's, I think that's maybe on a second reading, it gave me a certain freedom where I was reading closely and deeply because I love the universe that I was in, even though it was mm-hmm. acutely uncomfortable. I also find it acutely engaging but I understood that I don't have to, I, I, that is, that's what, that's kind of the surrender that I'm talking about. It's like, it's okay if I don't, I'm not following exactly. Cause there's no one detail here right. that is because the important thing is the sense of what this world feels like and what these characters are experiencing mm-hmm. of the world. Does that make sense? I mean, so that, yeah. that for me maybe is, and I'm, I'm also a weirdo. Like I really love to sort of swim and float and sometimes even drown. Um, in, 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 in poetry or prose. I mean, and, and, and I, I think I am a little odd in that way <laughs> that I'm actually <laughs> quite comfortable giving up that tether and just saying, okay, do it. Just wash over me. Let me experience you fully. Yes. Sure. And I think that's the, maybe the part of the appeal of this to me too, is I feel like there is a very visceral engagement mm-hmm. that I don't get, um, from, other texts. And I, and I don't feel like I have to kind of hold it onto it so closely. Like I can, I can let it go and it's still going to kind of move around me right? in a sort of my, and I'm confounding my asthma, but it's okay. <laughs> I mean, does that make sense? So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think maybe that's, it, 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 it might be also just a case of, I am a weirdo and it's a case of personality too. And <laughs> I don't think it's that I'm want to, I want to um, kind of ask a few questions, not just for me, but for the audience and everything. Um, Cause you know, I read your bio and I did a little light, you know, internet investigation. And because there was some, because, and there's some stuff you uh, sort of left out of the bio. So you have your MFA in, in writing and your focus mm-hmm. was poetry or, or prose? No, my, my focus was actually short fiction. Short fiction. Oh, okay. So who were your, who are your writers? Who are your, uh, who's your pantheon? Oh gosh, so many. Um, Ann Carson, Salman Rushdie, Jeanette Winterson, Amy Bloom, Zadie Smith. Ooh, okay. <laughs> um, most of my people, I will say, a commonality that I have found when I—I I mean, honestly, that's just a small slice. I mean, I just—I mm-hmm. I tend to be really in, ridiculously omnivorous mm-hmm. in my tastes. I do a lot of—I mean, at Lucille Clifton. Um, Okay. One of my favorite poets. I mean, so there, I tend to to read really. I'm very rangy in my uh-huh. tastes. Um, but I do find that some of my favorite uh, writers are the ones that can jump genre, that right. can do an incredible essay and then really delight me with fiction, or, or you know, who can mm-hmm. who can write like Michael Ondaatje. Um, oh yeah, just, yeah, that's my guy. Oh, I mean, I'm, I was just recommending <laughs> running to the family to somebody and I said, oh my God, if you haven't read this and I, I love his poetry, I, I, you know, but I, I love running in the family. I love his fiction. I, I think he's, yep. you know, he can really do no wrong with, with his writing. Right. Um, People who are yeah. on Dace fans are automatically my best friends. So, <laughs> so there you have it. We were meant to be. I don't know if we made this connection, but Jason, when I had put the Andace suggestion on your manuscript, it was Stacy who gave it to me. Oh, okay. Yes. Oh. Who would you, because lineage, literary lineage kind of 
helps me figure out where things go and how to piece it all together. Um, for people that if, if someone reads my stuff, they kind of have to understand that I started off with the American modernists, particularly, you know, Fitzgerald and Hemingway, and then suddenly discovered, and then on another side had the Beats, Kerouac and, and Ginsburg and stuff like this, and then suddenly discovered Ondaatje in graduate school and didn't realize that Ondaatje was tied back to the Beats through Bobby Louise Hawkins and other and and being friends with Robert Creeley and stuff like this, and realized that there was this fantastic thread between them. But and I don't think people would understand what I'm trying to do sometimes in my prose unless they know that I'm I'm there with Ondaatje, but you have to go back to Hemingway because I have sort of a kind of a spare, stark quality to the prose. So I'm wondering, you know, considering the writers that are in your pantheon. Do you see a connection that I'm not seeing between them, particularly Winterson, maybe, or any others that link back to Barnes? So who who could contempt who could be a contemporary key to get me and maybe Delia to Barnes in a way that we can follow the the progression? We can kind of um, deconstruct a current writer down to the source material that is Barnes and therefore understand it. Because from Mondace, I ended up at John Berger. And from John Berger, I ended up at Lawrence Durrell. And Durrell just blows my mind, right? And they're, they're all a combination of poets who become prose writers, which is what I always needed to have, not the Hemingway prose, but I needed the poetry prose, you know, hybrid mushed together. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Ann Carson, actually... Okay. Um, I mean, because the, the thing that w I would that my linkage in my mind is is Carson just comes up with these devastating lines that just pull me in, and and they they they're full of emotion, even though they're not necessarily depicting direct emotion. And I think for me, there's a, there's a tie there. There's a line in the Beauty of the Husband that has haunted me forever. I, I've always wanted to find a way to make it an epigram to a story, but then I feel like my stories are never worth uh, worthy. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, this is true. Um, this is very true. I haven't read your stuff and I'm already I'm already agreeing with Delia. It's just <laughs> use the epigrams because that gives you something to write towards. But I'm, I, I embrace competition. So but there's, there's a line and I'm, I might bungle it a bit. So this might be a little bit of paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me, but there's this line from beauty of the husband in one of the poems where she says, his letters, we agree, were highly poetic. They fell into my life like pollen and stained it. And I remember just taking that in and going, oh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's 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 smart language and it's precise mm -hmm. and not necessarily a set of images or something that you would uh, equate with this like deep gut punch of emotion. But I read that and went, oh. Right. <laughs> I, like, I, you know, and so th those, those, I, and I feel like there, there are many moments for me like that in Nightwood. So I can see kind of that line drawn between them. Winterson, absolutely. Winterson, I, I, her earlier work, especially, um, and her more difficult work, like Art and Lies, I think is one. Is I almost, art yeah. And I, I almost, cause, oh, okay. art, cause there, there's, there are her essays, which are art objects can also be read as art objects. Mm. Brilliant. I would love to talk about that at some point. Um, with all of you, actually, um, but art and lies, I think, was was there. There is there are a few semi 
narrative threads, but it's, it really is about the characters and the emotion. And, and, and it, there, I, I was for a minute, I actually was wondering if Art and Lies was a, a semi-reading of Nightwood, but I would be terrified to ask her that um, if ever I had the chance at a reading. Um, but yeah, so I think, I think Winterson, <laughs> particularly Art and Lies, I think would be an interesting and maybe kind of a key, a way in um, to Nightwood. Uh, I'm planning on re- I'm planning on revisiting her because I actually had I forget I think I told you this I forgot if I read Orange is Not the Only Fruit or Sex in the Cherry I forget which one and I bought another one one of them I don't remember I'm either rereading the same book or reading the other one but I actually had a really hard time with her and I think it was one of those things like there are certain books I try to read on the bus that I shouldn't just try to read on the bus and I think like it was the same thing like I was telling Jason like when I read Beloved the first time I just got through it and then I was like no I need to pay attention then when I pay attention paid attention I'm like oh shit like it just kind of blossomed right in terms of like what was happening and the writing and everything and so I think for me there are certain like like her because like everybody I know loves her. Um, I'm just like no, I need to give her another pass because um, I wasn't in the right state. Yeah, I read her. There was oh, no, another. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say something completely not important to what we're talking about. So you go ahead. No, no, go for it. I, I was... No, I was just thinking in terms of um, before Stacy when you were talking about being immersed in a book. I recently realized that I don't have that experience very often anymore. And I remember being like, like a young adolescent, maybe, or an older child, like around like 10, 12. And I used to read books during the summer. And I remember like getting through all of Judy Bloom's books. Like I ran out of books, even the dirty one, you know, I, I read them. <laughs> and I love them. But the thing is back then, it was like, you get a book and you read the book. And then you're like, oh shit, the book is like my, I remember my mom going to like a bookstore and saying like, my daughter has run out of books. Can you like recommend something that she might like because she liked such and such and Mm -hmm. gave me this other book about a sister who dies. Anyway, um, it was called the summer to die. That was the name of the book. Uh, and I, and I realize now I have so many books that it's like, I'm going through them and I like them and I enjoy them. Like the, the good ones, the mm-hmm. not so good ones, whatever. And I love to read, but there is, I do not experience the same immersion when it's like, this is the book. And when I end this book, there's not 50 or a hundred more, whatever the fuck is going on in my bookshelf right now, waiting, right? It's not like there was a certain preciousness, just I think in terms oh. of numbers. Mm-hmm that I experienced that I feel I have lost because I'm just like constantly told, read this, read, right? Like we hear all the time, like, this is a great book or this is, you know, and I read all, you know, I read nonfiction and I want to learn, I'm reading to learn things and I'm reading to right. I'm reading for different reasons and, and all of that. And it, that like, I am just like completely, I like, I don't want this to be over. Yeah. I don't know the last time I felt that, which is a bummer because I definitely was capable of it. Do you think you're just oversaturated? Like, where do you think that's coming from? I think it's that I have so many that I'm aware of the fact that like I have more to read. But how does that take away from the experience for you? Because it's like, uh, oh, I have to get through this book so I can like not have as many books to read. 
There was a certain part of me, there was a certain part of me, and this is something about me, and it's not just about reading, that gets very fixated on getting things done. And there is a thing about getting things done. Like I have to get things done and I have to complete things. It's and reading that part as weightlifting. Of my psyche, huh? It's reading as weightlifting. Yeah, but the weightlifting is like, is a little bit different. Is it? Right. Like actual weightlifting? It's it's a it's a it's a simile. It's a comparison. It's an illusion. I mean, no, I get that you're. I guess yes. I guess it's a yeah. It's a comparison, it's, it's a, but I don't know. You know, there's there with weightlifting. There is something to be achieved at the end. You know, bigger, more strength, more stamina. Right. You know, better health. You know, and it, and it, and there's there's nothing inherently deeper to weightlifting, right? So you're you're reading simply to get to a, a a point some arbitrary i've read x number of books things and not reading for the the act the pleasure of reading nobody lifts weights because oh man that feels really great and i enjoy doing this you know that's not necessarily that is actually not completely true but i mean i i, I get what you're saying i would just say maybe that that's not, just me it's not but yeah yeah, yeah. it's not quite like you're, you, you are making a good point. I'm just like, it's just that like, it's not quite in reality. It's not quite as clear cut as that, but, but I understand what you're saying, which is that, um, and I'm not saying like, I have a quota, like I have to read that many books, but that I feel the pressure of the books that are there. Not that like I have a number that mm -hmm. I have to get through. It's not that I don't actually have no idea how many books I read in any given period of time. Well, that's, but, that's kind um, of a good thing. There was a, an article I read a while back saying that, you know, reading is constantly aspirational. Mm -hmm. You know, you should, you should die with books you haven't read. Hundreds of unread books on your shelf yeah. in your living room. You should always read as if you have all the time in the world. It's not a competition. It's not a race. It's not a game. It's because I, because I, when you first started describing it, what, popped into my head was what I experienced is that I spend so much time thinking about narratology, the construction, the deconstruction, narrative discourse, all this stuff about how to build prose is that when I pick up a writer and they're hacky, they're clumsy, they're, I can Talk see Jason the, starting about Dan Brown, man. This is gonna, yeah, yeah. I see like the, is, I see the gears of the machine. It's like, I'm, I'm with you, brother. I'm with you. Why the <laughs> fuck am I wasting my time on this piece of shit that doesn't hide the machinery? It's bad. It's not well written. And this is why Andache is, is for me, he's one of the few writers left. Laird Hunt is another one. You know, John Berger before he died. Lawrence Durrell stuff. Um, Kerouac even. Um, Bobby Louise Hawkins. I've got a, a whole shelf over here I can pull from of, of writers that I'm still able to descend into. Yes. And the, and the reason that I reread them is because I need to have the familiarity with that text so that I can figure out how the fuck they did it <laughs> so mm. that I could do it. Most of the time, eh, you know, if I read it and it's not ter terribly offensive in its construction, it's not terribly obvious, but it doesn't wow me. It's like, okay, I read that book, put it away, fine. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and I've got a couple of those on some shelves over here that I've read. It's, I don't remember having read them. I am at a point in my life where there are books. It's so crazy. Like the whole, like, do you remember if you, you read, watch that movie? Like, I don't know. It was like, as being someone who, no, no, I'm just using an example. Oh. Like you might have watched a movie, but you don't remember. But right. I think it's rarer to be someone who doesn't remember if you read a book or not. 
I'm at a point in my life where like that, like, like not remembering which Winterson I read mm-hmm. um, or it's just because I read so much that like, sometimes I forget, yep. you know, I just, I do tell you, I think, I think you put too much pressure on yourself, mm-hmm. but I think that's part of like you, because you do have really good moral character and you do feel this sense of responsibility to yourself, to the people around you. I mean, honestly, I'm a rank centralist. I think that's part of like, it's not a, it's not a nice thing, but I think that's why I, I, I sometimes it's a little easier for me to just float in this stuff. Cause I don't, I don't feel that pressure. Although I will say, you know, it's interesting just as a parallel, cause now I'm doing a lot of academic writing. So for my doctoral program, and I'm, I'm deeply interested in, in education and Organ, you know, and educational theory, but I will say, like, I was very anxious coming into this program because I wasn't sure if I could do it. I wasn't sure if I was smart enough. And even now, like, as I'm, but what I'm allowing myself to do is I read different theorists. I accept, and so I even say this for Nightwood. I say, to, I would say to people, give it two readings, and then if it's not calling to you, it's okay. We don't have to fall in love with everything we read, and we don't need our pressure to pressure ourselves to do that. I have theorists that I read, and I'm like, okay good idea, but it leaves me really cold. And then I have, there, there's this woman, Eve Tuck, that I'm just obsessed with. And I'm like, how did you do this? How did you write this incredibly brilliant academic paper that I just want to read and read and read and read and read? Like, ah, that's brilliant. You know, but not, so I think it's okay to be open to things, to give them a second read. But then if it's not resonating with you, I think it's okay also mm-hmm. to let it go. We don't have to love everything. We don't have to connect and understand everything. And I think it's, and I think sometimes like, that's why I sort of just give myself that freedom because I. I don't want to feel that pressure. I want to feel a sense of discovery and joy when I'm entering into this stuff. And that's actually how I'm surviving, you know, working full time and doing grad school right now is I'm really approaching grad school is I'm not going to connect with and understand all of this, mm-hmm. but I'm going to let myself be open to it and be open to the things that I can pull from it and just swim in and enjoy that. And I think it's helped. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. helped me sort of swim through the dense prose and the difficult and challenging moments and not feel quite so you know, tense about it. And I'm a tense person. I'm full of anxiety, but that's kind of how I deal with it in in that way. So Mm -hmm. I, but I do, I do in general, just knowing you as a human, I think you're incredibly hard on yourself. How did we get here from my problems with books? Mm, I agree. (laughs) Did you get my manuscript in the mail yet, Jason? Yes, I did. It it arrived surprisingly fast. I think, I think the post office in San Francisco and the post office in Wichita have been like resisting, um, what the fuck his name is, the, the postmaster's fuck it all. It's a polarized nation on every level. I know. But at least at least at least our post offices are are resisting the authoritarianism and like going, yeah, you may dismantle the machines, but we're still gonna deliver on time. Yeah. Because <laughs> you said you said I'm sending it and like two days later I open up the mailbox and there it was. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> God bless um, the USPS. Oh God, yeah. I, uh, I bought like $50 worth of stamps at the beginning of the pandemic. Delia still reminds me frequently that I still owe her a letter. You do owe me a letter. I owe her a letter. You're not the only person to, to fall off on letter writing. Oh, I'm horrible. But, you know, it's interesting when you guys are talking. We're not talking about Nightwood that much anymore. Is that okay? No, I, I think, well, I think okay, we're, we're rounding out the back end of it here. Because part of, <laughs> part of, part of the dilemma with... <laughs> Part of the dilemma with Nightwood is one of the dilemmas that we have with all reading, which is is finding that way into it, particularly difficult text. And and like Stacy said, we don't have to love everything we read, but we do need to give everything a chance. Dan Brown, particularly 
No, not Dan Brown. Dan Brown okay. doesn't deserve a chance. He had his chance and he fucked it all. Um, okay. But the the books the books that people champion as being important to you know literature as a whole or a particular group as far as representation goes or expression goes you know something like Nightwood which has become an important text an important text focusing on the LGBTQ experience it's important that those of us particularly cisgendered straight white guys open the door let it in give it a chance see what we can expand ourselves see how we can expand ourselves and you know and and that doesn't necessarily have to be the only way into it it could be like with you delia your way into it is figuring out how to um find that that moral grounding into it to find out how to relate to it how to understand it how to pick up those pieces that don't that don't make sense to you and it may never happen that's cool but the fact that you've given it that chance is what's important that means you're willing to give other books a chance other people a chance other experiences a chance and and this is the the important pedagogical experience or, 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 or necessity of literature, whether it's poetry or prose or, or drama or something like this. It's, it's, it is what uh, Jonathan Gottschall would call, it's, it's a, a trouble generating machine. Fiction and, and poetry, and stuff, this is where we, we practice being human before we go out into the world and actually have to do humanity. <laughs> and if you aren't, this is why there's that old I can't, I wish I could remember who said it. They did, it was a, someone that Terry Gross was interviewing on Fresh Air about a book. And he is a guy, I can't remember his name. He wrote some book about poetry. And at one point he said to Terry, you know, that he thought that those who don't read poetry aren't fit to be let loose in the world. <laughs> and he's right. It's a jokey little way, that, but if, if, Reading is that act of opening yourself up to another consciousness, another soul, another perception of the world. But there are tons of people who don't read at all. Right. And they aren't fit to be in the world. They're, they're worse than the feral animal that is Robin Vogt in this story. Uh, nice circle back. Because <laughs> they don't... Robin... Even though she has this feral nature in this story, she still has some shred of humanity. She can still feel something for somebody else, even in a moment. People who don't read, they're psychopaths. Oh, I wouldn't say they're psychopaths. I well, feel like they're, they're being denied or they're denying themselves something that could help connect and deepen yeah. their experience of the world it's, that's how i would put that in because okay. in, 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 in a slightly <laughs> kinder way yeah um, they are, they're, they're <laughs> resisting their own humanity might be a better way to i suppose put it resisting their own humanity as opposed or to, maybe they're in, in a world or a life situation that has kind of thrust that upon them you know yeah. i think it's not reading is is for many people has been made inaccessible both by culture, by social situation. And that's something really important. So that's for me, like, as I'm, and I'm, as I'm working with students, I'm not, um, I, I'm realizing there are a lot of things about, especially even contemporary um, U.S. society mm -hmm. that has moved people away from books. And so rather than castigating them, I think it's a good idea to, to reel them in and say, Let it, let's show you. Let's bring you into our world and show you right. what's here, you know? And so I, for me, and this is just because I, I've, I've run into so many instances where I've run into people in my lives, in my life and at different stages of their lives that for whatever reason, they didn't have a way in. Mm -hmm. 
but then if they have the chance to, they're always surprised at what they discover. So I think absolutely that's kind of like propagating that love of, of the written word, I think is, is a good thing. Thank you for reeling me back in. Yeah. <laughs> with love, friend. Always I, with love. I, well, I, I get a little hyperbolic and I get a little, because I'm very passionate yeah. about this stuff. Yeah. Delia has been dealing with it for 20 years. I mean, good grief. Hey, if, if you don't have a little hyperbole in your life, you're not living. I'm a... <laughs> but, you know, this conversation is reminding me of the different weight. So, like, uh, so you're talking about, like, academic race. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this. Like, the, my, I peaked at 21 when I wrote a paper about Heidegger. Oh, <laughs> I, I, was, I was 21 or 22. And we read a book by him, which is very short. And... It was, it was, it was crazy making. And I'm in this class with like 15 other students and everybody's trying to be smarter than the next person. And you know how I am. So like I'm second guessing myself and I feel stupid and I can't do it and all this stuff. And my professor, and I went to him one day to talk about how inept I was. And he said, they're trying to impress each other. That's what's going on. They're just trying to. And so I made the decision that I was going to stop listening to everybody. Mm -hmm. Right. And I wrote this paper and I got the only A plus in the class. And what I did with that, right, was what we're talking about. Right. So when you write, when you have to write, when you have to do with, when you have to write a paper and say, this is what I'm getting. So when I engaged with that, it's not, it, it's not clear. It was a book about meditative thinking, right? Mm -hmm. So like it, it's not, um, it's not, a, it's not a concrete subject matter and it sure shit isn't written in a concrete way, but I had to figure out how to engage in it my own way. Right. And then write about it. Mm -hmm. Right. So it was like the string was almost invisible, but that was the string. Like I had to recognize that was the string and that was what I was going to write. And someone else could have written just as good a paper taking a very different tack. Right. Um, but there's something about the, 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 the process of writing about it where it's, it gives me permission to be, I am the writer. And so this is my shtick with this, this piece of work, mm -hmm. which I feel like is a little bit different than the way I engage with this, which is I need to talk about it. And there is a sense of, there is some kind of thing here I'm supposed to get and then talk about it in a way that like Jason, you would like recognize the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, where I feel like if I was writing about it, like if we're talking about academic writing or writing for a class, that there's something about that that process where you can be like, this is this is my take on this thing. And the tether can be looser. The tether can be, that string can be not very clear. Right. Because I'm creating a thing to respond to it. Mm -hmm. And there's no one else there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I might do it wrong. It might suck. But like, yeah, there's something about there was something about engaging in the academic setting that is different than like having this conversation. Mm -hmm. Right. Where it's me and the work. Right. And not me having to have a conversation with another person about the same thing. 
I get it. I think I, I think I know what you're talking about. It's that it's that when you're having the conversation, you feel like you have to account for everybody else's opinion. Whereas when you're sitting down to write the paper and you're just engaging the work yourself, it's just about figuring out what you know. And well, not- I think it. I think it's partially like I'm afraid of getting it wrong. Right. So if like you, because we, Jason, you went, you and I went through this with Ulysses, or I went through mm-hmm. it, and you were a party to it, which was I read that book and there was shit I missed. Right. Like you were like, oh, no, 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 they did this thing. And I'm like, oh, like, like, like concrete narrative, like very things when you were like talking about the actual story and it was stuff that I missed. And I hate that shit because I feel like a <laughs> moron. Right. Don't. Um, don't. Yeah. Because so, I had that same feeling when I started my undergrad that there was a, there was a right way and a wrong way. There was right and wrong when it came to to reading and to literature. And I had a professor. um Oh, what was her name? I took 20th century British science fiction with her. Um, it'll come to me eventually. Anyway, she's. I took my my intro to lit studies course with her as a, as a sophomore, the 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 washout course for English majors at, at K State. And I I confessed to her at some point that I was kind of worried about writing this, you know, paper about this story we had read or whatever. Because you know, what if I get it wrong? Which is, she was. It's just like creative writing. Whatever whatever you see is there is there right. as long as you can back it up. Doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. If you sit and wrestle with the text, whatever you think is there is there. It's your reaction, your interaction with the paper. There is no right or wrong. You and I can argue about the different ways we perceive it, but that doesn't mean I'm right and you're wrong. We had different experiences of that text, and that's it. That's it. It's your experience. Yeah. There's nothing wrong about your experience. Mm-hmm. Did I give you the impression there was something wrong about your experience? Was I an asshole? No, 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 not at all. No, <laughs> okay. no, no, no. It's like if like if I, we were watching a movie. Right. And you were like, so-and-so did such and such. And I was like, I'm sorry, I missed that. I was eating popcorn and I was- Well, that's the, that's the difference the between visual media um, and, and interpretive media that that is- literature you know the 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 word what is it the the uh the sign and the signal cosine oh is that i'm talking about calculus no it's um the sign the sign and the signifier yeah the sign and the signifier Signifier and the signifier there is always that interpretive link between those two things when it comes to language that doesn't exist with the visual um Mm -hmm. so when when you have that link between the 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 sign and the signifier that that fuzzy weird link that kind of negates any opportunity for um wildly div- it negates the opportunity for uniform interpretation now it does not mean that you can have psychotic interpretation, I guess is the best way to describe it, where how would that be the best way to describe it? It's not like, you know, you and I can read the same sentence and I say, oh, this is about somebody's hatred of somebody else. And you can say, no, it's about somebody's hatred of this object. That's a, there's a realm of a variation that's allowed. Now, of course, Mm -hmm. you know, you can't, I can't say, well, that sentence is about somebody's hatred of, of Jenny. And if you sit there, no, no, that's about Mars. 
Well, that's obviously wrong. I mean, that you're, <laughs> we obviously weren't reading the same text at that point. I mean, within the confines of, I think it has to deal with, think about what we were talking about last time about open and closed texts, right? Right. There's still, a, there's still lanes. And as long as we're in the same lane, we're good. Nothing's going to be terribly wrong. You have to be legitimately insane to read, you know, the ball is red and come up with something like, oh, that means you have to be kind of the conspiracy, a QAnon conspiracy theorist to end up with something <laughs> outside of the ballpark of possibility. But if you and I are reading, you know, these passages about Jenny in Nightwood and just like with, uh, with Stacy, who kind of sees the humanity of Jenny and, and, and has this empathy for her that I actually kind of feel a little bit embarrassed that I didn't also see that right away, that I was more focused on, boy, these people are really mean to her. And we're, we're still <laughs> in the same ballpark, but we've ended up at different spots, and that's perfectly cool. But when you have mm -hmm. visual media, it's really hard to say when we look at a picture of somebody throwing a ball at somebody else to go, oh, that's not a that's not a ball. That's a watermelon. No, right? You know we can't. There's the the lanes are narrow narrower with video with visual image. So it's it's cool. You're not crazy. You're just have a a different relation to the text than either of us do, and that's beautiful. But I don't think this was. Uh, a situation where it's like you like you said mm -hmm. oh i took this as this it's like the same thing i was saying about tony morrison last time it's not that i had a different interpretation it's that i missed there's a difference i think there were th there's a difference between i engage in it differently and i come to a different conclusion at and mm -hmm. missing and there were things i missed right. right just like when i first read beloved i missed a bunch of stuff and the second time i'm like oh i i get Right. I just um, had that experience here when Stacy read that passage from page uh, 60, whatever, where I had marked it, but the significance of it missed me. But you knew what it was. You knew that they were talking about the items right. in their home. But I should have recognized that for what it was. But because of something that happened, my relationship earlier in the text with the language twisted it. it I was I was having this alchemical situational living experience with the book and something that happened before affected my perception of the moment when I should have recognized, you know, and the passage of their lives together, every object in the garden, every item in the house, every word they spoke, I should have said like, oh, this is the catalog of their mutual resonance. I should have recognized that, but I'd been so distracted, so confused early on that I didn't recognize it. So the things that you do recognize, I think, Delia, are those moments when the the resonance, the kind of the tuning fork of the prose has hit you correctly. And then when it throws you out and you miss stuff, you miss stuff that I picked up on, it's because that tuning fork is mm -hmm. at a different resonance for you than it is for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I, I don't know if it's missing. I think it's just we, we pick up mm -hmm. different frequencies and there are certain things that we focus in on just because of you know who we are or how we read and i don't think that one is necessarily better than the other i just think they're different resonances and that's that's okay it's not because like one person missed something that they i don't, I don't necessarily know that you should right. have gotten that you know what i mean like i don't know i i, I feel like 
it's it's okay. It's okay for things, different things to ping us in different ways. And there's some things that that you have probably focused on in this that I'm, I did not focus on in that. That's that's okay. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I just feel like we I'm I, I I'm all about freedom <laughs> in 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 engaging with 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 text no really and engaging with books and stories and, and the written word and because I feel like if we can't allow for ourselves to be free in this space where the hell can we allow ourselves to be free and so I also think we need to go easy on ourselves mm-hmm. when we're in these spaces and you know it's so that we can hold on to that pleasure mm-hmm. so that we can hold on to that and not, and not even necessarily pleasure or hold on to the discomfort you know, or hold on to the uneasiness. Like that's okay. The humanity, hold on to the humanity. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That, the strange messiness of what it is to exist (laughs) in this crazy world. Right. I mean, that's okay. (laughs) All right. Well, this was a very good discussion. Thank you. (laughs) Bye. 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 Thank Thank you, Stacey, for joining us last minute and all that fun stuff. Oh, thanks so much for inviting me into the space. It's wonderful. The Outrider podcast is recorded by me, Jason Quinn-Malott, and the sound editing and post-production is performed by Heather Ann Eden.